Professor Teresa Betancourt is the Salem Professor in Global Practice at the Boston College School of Social Work and the Director of the Research Programme on Children and Adversity. She's interested in the effect that adversity has on children, young people and their families, including violence and extreme poverty. Much of her work has taken place in Africa, where she has successfully applied a cross-cultural approach to mental health research. Her keynote talk, which takes place on Friday the 9th of October at the Together for Action 2020 conference, is entitled Promoting Mental Health and Resilience in Children and Families Affected by Adversity, From Longitudinal Research to Implementation Science. A very warm welcome to the podcast, Teresa. Uh, I wanted to start by asking you this. What makes a successful mental health researcher? Well, thank you, Andre, for having me. It's really my great pleasure to be here, and I'm so honored to have received the Blanche Edelson Award um, and to join you all um, at this meeting. Uh, so I think what makes a good mental health researcher and a successful one is starting with a sense of humility, especially when you're working in diverse cultures, starting with a sense of cultural humility and respect. I think an ability to truly uh, spend some time listening, taking in context and developing partnerships. A lot of the research in which my team has been engaged, I would place along the community-based participatory research spectrum. Uh, it's always important uh, for us to have partnerships on the ground where we see it not as us as experts and others as recipients of research or knowledge, but actually mutual learning. So we're engaging together to tack, tackle a problem of shared interest. Uh, we're learning um, from the others. We both bring uh, you know, resources to bear in addressing the problem, um, knowledge of different things us more with research methods, but community members knowing, you know, exactly the dynamics of the community, what the priorities are, what the leverage points are in terms of strengths, resilience. Uh, this can help us a great deal with making potential intervention models or services models more acceptable, more um, addressing issues of feasibility, fit to context and to culture. Uh, so a lot of how we approach this is through mixed methods research. So I'd say, you know, developing skills also not just in, in quantitative research methods, but also qualitative research methods, and then how to integrate those two sources of data are also uh, critically important um, because you need to understand uh, the sort of what matters locally um, and how those things are expressed even to understand assessment and measurement. Uh, as well as the ingredients, the active ingredients of intervention models that are more strengths-based. I think a, a third point that's really critical for being a successful mental health researcher is um, putting ethics at the forefront. And I really should have started in talking about ethics. Uh, I see ethics as where our work always needs to begin. Uh, when I'm um, teaching graduate students, our first lectures are always on um, the ethical orientation to working with vulnerable populations. And uh, remembering that above all, our first principle is do no harm. And that means that we have to constantly be reflecting as a team about the cost benefit of what we do, um, the sorts of partnerships we make, keeping promises that we make um, and having long-term engagement so that we can truly understand the context in terms of trying to make a, a difference in, in the work that we do as researchers. Can you say something more about this this cultural humility. I'm interested in 
in how that might be different from one setting to the next, you know, comparing, I don't know, going to work as a US researcher in a impoverished um, community within the mm -hmm. US um, with refugees, for example, compared to going as a US researcher to Africa, to Rwanda, as you have done and, and doing research there on the ground. How does that need to be different, if, if, if at all? I think the, the basic premise is actually quite similar, which is it's not about parachuting in uh, driven by your own interest or desire to you know, see the world and travel, but rather to um, be invited in, um, to have uh, come together around a shared issue of interest. And I would say in any setting in, in which I've worked, there's been some sort of synergy of that nature where there was uh, an unaddressed problem, a potential for a partnership, and then it became clear that the, the sort of pieces were in place to truly do something meaningful rather than one-sided. Um, so, you know, when we started our refugee work in the United States, it was back in 2005 when I was at Boston Medical Center working with the Refugee um, Trauma and Resilience uh, Mental Health Program. Uh, they were offering clinical services as well as research was ongoing in that setting. And we had been contacted by a public school district where there had been large numbers of refugees being resettled into the school district, um, especially young kids who were having, you know, quote unquote, behavioral issues in the classroom. Um, they were newly resettled. And so when a teacher says things like, line up, we're going to be distributing art supplies. You know, when, when you've been living in a refugee camp environment, when it meant you needed to push to the front of the line to get supplies to survive because there were food distributions. Those, those same sort of you know, survival skills carry over here to the United States and maybe there's a misunderstanding and that's certainly what we came to see between the teachers, the school officials, the parents and the children themselves that there was just a bit of a disconnect. Um, so we were able to do some uh, awareness raising, um, both with the families, helping them understand um, what the expectations of the school were, what the role of teachers were in this culture in Somalia. These were Somali Bantu refugees. Uh, it's very typical that it's respectful to the teacher to turn your child over to be educated and, and not, you know, bother the teacher, not, you know, be um, too pushy, uh, whereas the schools were expecting the parents to show up to parent-teacher night, expecting their opinion, and saw them as disengaged. At the same time, you know, the teachers were misunderstanding some of those behavioral um, issues um, and sort of pathologizing them rather than understanding them as sort of learned survival skills that maybe didn't serve kids anymore. And so after that, I met uh, a liaison to the public schools, uh, Ois Hussein, who himself came from a refugee background. And he was one of the individuals who knew the culture, knew the language, was working with parents on helping them understand context. And together, we decided to start this project to think about how could we support um, successful uh, family functioning in the context of resettlement? So how could we help those families understand uh, what it is to navigate life in the United States, the expectation of schools, um, understand when you have a history of trauma and loss, what that might mean for your own parenting approaches, your own sense of well-being, how to navigate formal and informal resources, uh, how to improve parent-child communication relationship, and sometimes they're, you know, losing language quickly while well, their children are learning English. So ways to um, help um, parents 
uh, understand what their children were experiencing and also open up conversations in families. And so all of that um, couldn't have started without a partnership from the very beginning where there was a shared interest in promoting the success of families as they resettled in the United States. When we first started in Rwanda, uh, I was working with uh, an organization called Partners in Health, which is a very well-known global um, health uh, non-governmental organization that uh, intrinsically partners with government. And so a lot of what uh, they frame their work is as a accompaniment. So they're working step-by-step -step with the government to strengthen systems. And they had worked on a lot of HIV-related services, uh, you know, providing antiretroviral virus treatment for parents, for children um, who are HIV positive. But there wasn't a lot of attention to the broader family functioning. So when a parent is living with HIV, oftentimes it can be a crisis for the family. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. Um, the caregiver themselves may experience impairment or challenges in, in their parenting um, due to their illness, due to uh, social stigma, due to social and economic issues that arise as their ability to work is impacted. And then children are often fearful. You know, I might lose my mother and father. Might the, you know, there's a lot of worry, anxiety. Maybe I'll get HIV. The parents are worried about the same thing. Um, there's risk of school dropout, of um, children engaging in more risky behaviors. So it's really important that in a situation like that, we can think upstream about how can we help this family um, be successful despite HIV? How can this family continue to communicate, um, continue to uh, have strong parent-child interactions despite living with what's now becoming a chronic illness with the advent of antiretroviral therapy? So that was the genesis of uh, starting to do family-based preventative work um, done by lay workers from the community in home visiting models working uh, with vulnerable families in Rwanda. And then once we had laid that groundwork, um, the World Bank and the government um, were both very committed to um, expanding uh, prevention, um, not just focused on HIV, but also looking at early childhood development um, as an entry point for promoting success of children and families a lot earlier. And so with that political will around um, early childhood development, we were able to take the framework of a strengths-based um, parenting intervention and blend in, uh, you know, other evidence-based practices around promoting hygiene, stimulation, nutrition, uh, to develop uh, a model that promoted early childhood development, but also address some of the issues of stress, um, emotion dysregulation, the history of trauma and loss in a lot of these families in post-genocide Rwanda, so with a focus on violence prevention. So the intervention itself is targeting um, promotion of ECD prevention of violence. And we couldn't do that work if we weren't doing it in concert with the stakeholders on the ground, att being attuned to um, where there are windows of opportunity, where there are critical partnerships, um, where there's political will. And over the years, um, in particular, um, that that program has targeted families living in extreme poverty in Rwanda. And, and now we're in the middle of a very large project with a, a number of partners, including the government, to reach 10,000 households in poverty across three districts. And to think at that scale, uh, you can't get there unless you're involving uh, the stakeholders. And that means community partners, as well as uh, visionaries within government uh, to design the thing from the get-go. And that's what we mean by deployment-focused models. And to do that, 
uh, you really need to be able to create those relationships and be invited in. It feels to me like you're you're so much more than a researcher. You know, you're talking there about delivering evidence-based services for large, large numbers of people. Um, when I have these sorts of conversations with, you know, global mental health researchers, I often hear about RCTs that are being conducted in African countries, but the numbers are very small and we get to the end of the conversation and the, the final point is, you know, so people need to take this evidence and do something with it. It feels right. like you're doing something with your own interventions as you do the research. Is that fair? Exactly. So I think earlier in my career, I was, you know, really focused on first understanding context, longitudinal intergenerational research and understanding processes of risk and resilience, using that to develop deployment focused services models, intervention models, and then we would test them using the most rigorous designs possible, including randomized control trials. But after a few experiences of conducting and publishing very rigorous randomized control trials, I realized there was still something missing. And I needed to uh, take my work to a, a further level um, through implementation science. It's not it's not adequate, um, it's necessary, but not sufficient uh, to have the randomized control trials and answer the question of, does it work? Uh, and then someone's got to figure out how to make this work at scale. And that's actually a whole body of scientific work that is before us uh, to test strategies for scaling out evidence-based interventions and sustaining them for disseminating and diffusing them while maintaining quality. And so uh, what's exciting about implementation science as a discipline is there are models, there are theories, there are approaches in terms of um, the research questions that we can ask that are critical uh, to expanding the reach of evidence-based interventions globally. And I think we need to do our very best work of this nature in the most fragile and low resource settings, both in the United States and globally, because we don't have a lot of resources to go around. And we certainly want to be as efficient and effective as possible at scale. So I think it's a really exciting time uh, for junior researchers to be entering this field, because if you're able to build those uh, partnerships on the ground and approach your work with cultural humility and in concert with key actors, you can begin to envision and craft research questions about how might you scale out and sustain quality. And so in Sierra Leone, We've been testing a group mental health intervention uh, that targets war-affected youth, especially uh, transdiagnostic uh, consequences of exposure to trauma and loss, um, emotion dysregulation, and interpersonal functioning. And when we first tested this intervention, we linked it to educational programs. So Sierra Leone may not have a very strong community-based mental health system, especially one that looks at health promotion or prevention services, but there are schools which provide an innovative delivery platform to reach more vulnerable youth. So we tested it first in school settings. We saw that not only did we have significant effects on emotion regulation, interpersonal um, attitudes and behaviors, social support, daily functioning, 
that we saw that kids who got the readiness intervention were six times more likely to persist in school. So based on that experience and also finding the teachers rated the kids who, and the teachers were blind who'd been in the intervention group or the control group, they also saw an improvement in attitudes and behaviors in the kids who'd received the intervention. So we wrote a second grant to the National Institutes of Mental Health for an initiative called Youth Forward to now test the innovative delivery platform of youth entrepreneurship and employment programs. And we've done this in uh, partnership with the German development agency, GIZ, uh, and youth um, commissions um, and throughout uh, three rural districts in Sierra Leone to identify young people who are entering entrepreneurship programs and have a rigorous design where we look at youth who receive services as usual or who haven't yet received any of these services or those who get the blend of entrepreneurship plus the evidence-based group mental health intervention and look at, um, are we able to uh, feasibly reach and train uh, youth entrepreneurship and employment workers to do this intervention because they're ultimately lay workers. They have a line sort of mission, but they're not mental health professionals. So with high quality supervision and training, can we have the intervention delivered through that platform and actually testing a strategy for quality improvement is another big part of that project. So we're using a collaborative team approach to engage in cross-site learning, quality improvement cycles, whereas uh, youth employment and entrepreneurship workers new to doing evidence-based group mental health learn the practice, they're getting uh, supervision and quality improvement from a seed team who are very expert in the intervention, who can work across these three rural districts and help them learn from each other. So as one site overcomes a barrier, say childcare barriers, because when we spread uh, the youth readiness intervention to entrepreneurship programs, we would uh, work with an older population of young people, 18 to 30, and that's still considered youth within Sierra Leone. Uh, but they may have kids, especially young women. We had a lot of barriers um, to address when it came to the participation of young women uh, who've now been out of school. So you can imagine the, the sort of background um, that would come behind a young woman who's 18 years old and hasn't been able to complete uh, an education in Sierra Leone and is now in a livelihoods program. So as they innovate and would address these barriers in one district, they don't keep that to themselves. They share it with the other districts so they don't recreate the wheel so they can build on the lessons learned. And so with the targeted supervision, with the cross-site learning, the collaborative team approach has allowed us to enhance our delivery to sustain quality as we go. And um, we're now um, talking to a range of different donors about conducting, you know, even after COVID um, has delayed us, might we be able to come back and look at longer term livelihoods and economic functioning uh, in those who receive the readiness intervention. So this sort of thinking about innovative platforms for delivery when you don't have strong mental health systems, I think is really critical and an exciting element of the sort of implementation science we can do. I'm thinking how we can apply what you know, what you've learned to the bigger picture, um, to you know, mental health research much more broadly. Uh, it strikes me that you know, mental health research is broken in many senses. You know, either we have research that isn't answering the questions that are important to people at the front line, it's just irrelevant. Or we have research which is really unreliable and poorly conducted. Or we have researchers who don't feel it's their responsibility to engage with the public. You know, they're scientists, they're just focused on their, you know, 
very specific area and it's somebody else's responsibility to implement this stuff or to learn from it. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think we need to do in, in, in terms of the big picture to bridge this gap that we have between the research world and people's lives in the real world? I think that the way that research funding is structured really needs to shift. And it doesn't mean that we ask everyone whose talent is in bench research to get out there, roll up their sleeves and, and be highly translational, right? But I do think we need to value um, translation of research in tenure and promotion. Uh, we need to um, have journals that are interested in emphasizing implementation science, asking questions of dissemination, diffusion, sustainment of evidence-based practices, uh, testing strategies to enhance reach, uh, fidelity and quality improvement strategies being tested. So we need a place for that. There is a, a journal implementation science, but you know, also seeing the appetite for that from the big medical journals, uh, as well as the big donors. And I will say that implementation science like community-based participatory research, and they have a lot of shared elements, are not to the light of heart. Uh, things can change. In fact, with the project in Sierra Leone that I described to you earlier, when we first were funded to do that work, it was in partnership with the World Bank, who had a cash transfer program that we were going to link our evidence-based, mainly cognitive behavioral therapy-derived group mental health intervention to. And a new country manager decided they were going a different direction and, and not going ahead with the cash transfer program. So here we had this um, exciting NIMH grant and one of our big stakeholders had just changed direction. And when you're doing real world science, those sorts of things happen all the time. So there has to be a certain preparedness of junior researchers to anticipate, to be able to engage in strategic problem solving. We had to quickly hit the ground and you know, find out other alternatives um, for working with a funded, ready to scale livelihoods or employment program. We were fortunate in Sierra Leone to work with the GIZ program. Uh, but I do think it, it means we have to also shift our preparedness of, of researchers because it's, it's very lovely to do a, you know, an effectiveness study in a very controlled environment where you're in charge of our, all the variables and, you know, you can have, uh, you know, a tightly uh, controlled uh, environment in which you're implementing uh, maybe a workforce in which you do the standard thing, you get to the end, you answer the question of does it work, but that really doesn't help you answer the question of would this work in the real world? And so when you start to answer those sorts of research questions, you have to start to tangle with the real world and the real world is messy. Uh, so I think some of that uh, you know, reality of doing this means that more flexibility um, from funders. We have found that working in post-conflict Sierra Leone, uh, which was never really restored after the war, continues to have university system that doesn't uh, have all the resources that we do in the United States with our universities um, in terms of uh, writing grants, administering grants, having people uh, getting their time released to participate in research and lead research in addition to their teaching load. So we also have to do a lot of work uh, with visionaries and leaders at low resource setting universities to free up more opportunities for people from those settings to be at the helm of this sort of research. And as I sometimes say, we're really in the business of trying to put ourselves out of business. 
we want to build that capacity. I'd like to see in the future and why I took the Salem professorship at Boston College was to give myself a better platform to mentor the next generation of uh, global mental health researchers, uh, both uh, young people from my own country getting involved in this work, but also really giving priority to people from those low resource settings to be in leadership roles, to be the visionaries, to be the principal investigators in leading this kind of research and, and building those partnerships and having the long-term commitment to working in a place to truly see it transform. And I've worked now in uh, Sierra Leone since 2002. So I'm moving beyond 18 years of work there. I've worked in Rwanda. Uh, since 2006. Uh, so having long-term engagement and commitment to a place is really critical. And people from that environment can do that um, in a way that's absolutely transformative, but we have to give them um, the opportunity to thrive and succeed. And that takes a different type of investment. Thank you very much for joining me for the podcast. Um, I'm really looking forward to live tweeting your talk at the conference on Friday. It's my pleasure, Andre. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.